Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Mark Boris Podcast. Well, good morning. Hi, Jess. Good morning. How are you going? Good morning, Mark. And Jaggy. Morning. It's a fantastic show for today. Um, our special guest today is pilot Captain Richard DeCrepney, who safely landed an A380 in Singapore after an engine exploded. Uh, we're going to have a talk to him a bit later about um, all the experiences that came out of that um, landing of that aeroplane and really what's probably important for me is to find out what happened since that period. Uh, we're going to look at some more uh, videos to review for Eagle's Nest and uh, we're going to have a talk about what's been on my mind this week. Before we do all that, we're going to look at the RBA announcement this week. It came out yesterday. The uh, decision was to leave rates on hold at 2%. Um, interesting enough, there wasn't a lot of discussion in the uh, statement about the uh, the Grexit or the uh, the no vote in Greece. Um, I guess what the RBA is waiting for is to see what happens as a result of the no vote. As I said many times before, I don't think Greece's exit from the European uh, economy will make much difference um, to Australia. Um, obviously, it's going to cause some disruptions up there, and uh, we have to watch out for what those disruptions are going to, uh, uh, how they're going to relate to our markets here, but it should be a short term thing. What the Reserve Bank Governor also noted is that um, uh, the growth in the Australian economy, there's a GDP has been somewhat below the long-term average. Um, that's a problem. So in other words, they generally speaking like to leave rates where they are. Um, there's been very slow growth in labour costs. In other words, wages have not inc- increased. Um, he's in forecasting inflation to remain consistent with the target. And in fact, more than likely inflation will stay below the target, the target being 2 to 3%. And therefore, he dis- they've decided or they recommended that um, monetary policy needs to remain accommodative. In other words, stimulate the economy which means keep the interest rate low, but that didn't wasn't a, it's not so bad that it should reduce the rate to nothing. Um, credit is recording moderate growth. In other words, there's not much lending going on, uh, and I can tell you in the Yellow Brick Road experience, <coughs> excuse me, Yellow Brick Road experience, like everyone else, I've got a bloody flu. Um, um, the Yellow Brick Road experience lending is actually uh, starting to level out. Um, it's been very good for a long time. This is not a lending-driven house price increase. In other words, house prices are not increasing because of extra credit out there in the marketplace. In fact, the opposite. House prices have been driven by demand and supply. And finally, and that, that was one of the observations of the Reserve Bank Governor. Um, he did he did note that uh, house prices continue to rise strongly in Sydney, but the rest of Australia, that is not the case. So let's not get too carried away with what we hear about in Sydney. Let's look about the Australian average. Um, and the average is that that is not right. House prices are not rising strongly. They are staying fairly steady. Um, the Reserve Bank is noting house prices and they're working with the regulators to look at that. In other words, they're working with the regulator to the banks and making sure the banks don't lend recklessly. 
And that is happening. That's the case. Um, so overall, cash rate remains unchanged. They're going to keep watching the markets, look at the data, prepare to reduce rates if they need to, um, certainly in the moderate, uh, moderate to short, short term to moderate term. Um, they're going to leave rates where they are. End of story. No more to know about that. Just keep posted and see what sort of ructions occur as a result of the Greek no vote. We're going to hear, hear a lot about that in the newspapers. Ultimately, will not actually, will not actually affect our market. So a very small percentage for us, like something like 1% uh, in terms of um, how it affects us. So that's zero. Let's get straight into it. QF32. An A380 was just four minutes in the league from Singapore to Sydney on November the 4th, 2010, when there was an explosion. I can't imagine what would happen to me if I was sitting in the front of an aeroplane as a passenger, let alone as a, a pilot, um, what I would be thinking if, there was an, if I knew there was an explosion. Probably better if you are a passenger because you wouldn't know there was an explosion as a pilot you would. Anyway, an engine caught fire, shards of metal sliced through the wing. Two hours later... The captain had safely landed the super jumbo, saving all 469 people aboard. And today, here to talk to me about this, to talk to us about it, is Richard DeCrepney. Morning, Richard. Morning, Mark. Thank How you, you for having me. Mate, this is a real honour for us to stand here, or for me to stand in front of someone who saved everybody's lives, but still standing here and uh, managed to write a book about it. And, um, and you've done a lot of talking about it, and lots of people want to hear about it. What sort of went through your mind? Could, but before I, you tell me what went through your mind, just explain to me straight up what actually happened. What were you aware of at the time that you noticed the so-called explosion? Four minutes after takeoff, everything's going normally. We're just settling down into a climb when there were two explosions. Boom, boom. Bit like a backfire in your car, and the backfire in the car doesn't scare you, and it didn't scare us. But it was that we've been trained enough to recognise that as a sign that the engine has certainly failed, and perhaps catastrophically. So in our case, it had, it had exploded, and pieces had cut 750 wires. We had 500 impacts on the aeroplane, 21 out of 22 systems on the A380, which has four million parts, 400 million dollars. 21 systems were compromised and we then carried out threat and error management which was to identify what was wrong, try and fix it. If we can't fix it, try and mitigate it. So we, we spent an hour and a half to work out how we were going to land the aircraft, what we had left. And then when we landed, which was two hours after the explosion, we had two hours on the ground to maximise the safety of the passengers to, to, to minimise injury and to get them off in what was a very stressful and toxic environment outside the aircraft on the runway. So the QF-32 incident took four hours for the incident itself and then it proceeded further on in the terminals later and with customer care. Um, and that's really probably what influenced the public perception of QF-32 was the, the disclosure and the guarantee and the public perception of the incident. So how, how did you and your co-pilots and I guess engineers... And crew, you know, how, how, what did you do immediately? So what was the first thing that went into your mind? You went, whoa, explosion, problem. Uh, then what did you think? What did you do? Well, Is some people might get startled when the unexpected <clears throat> happens. You might startle and freeze or, or try and run away or fight. And we, we are trained to recognise those signs and then go into a drill. It's a well-trained drill. We have to be recertified. Unlike people in other industries, we are recertified, capable to fly seven times a year. And so in the simulators, which we do four times a year, we practice engine failures. We hear them. We feel them in the simulator. This explosion was unlike anything that you could simulate in 
an aeroplane in an aeroplane simulator but it put us into the mindset where we started our procedure so we started the procedure which was to stabilize the aircraft make sure it's flying if you don't keep the aircraft flying or if you don't aviate then everything else becomes redundant because you might be if you get into the checklist too quickly you might be halfway through the first checklist when the aircraft impacts the ground inverted so we had to stabilize the aircraft make sure it was flying and then we had to make sure we weren't going to keep flying into the mountains or that we were clear of them and then we start communicating with people and we run the checklists so there's very little time or there's very few occasions when you should really rush and 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 just ignore everything else uh, in an aeroplane. The only time you need to really react instinctively and extraordinarily fast is if the aircraft's on fire. Now, we were not on fire initially. So we followed the instructions, we followed the logic and the checklist and the threat and error management. It took time. But on this computerized aircraft, we have to because a computerized aircraft will turn on and off systems. It's not like a tractor that you can see everything working and know what you have. We had to work out what was working, what we had left and how we would use it to land. So that took time. So again, it was all procedure driven. It was an unexpected event. It was a black swan event, but amongst, we, we can mix the normal procedures with resilience and procedures to handle the unknown and unexpected we can merge them together and that's what we had to do. How did you manage, how do you manage the natural instinct to panic? I mean, what is the override? I mean, how do you override that instinct? I think you panic <clears throat> if, well, the amygdala in the lower part of the brain is, is a fight and flight mechanism. So when something happens quickly, like an explosion, some people might get startled, they'll, they'll freeze or they'll fight or they'll run away. Now that's a human reaction. What you have to do is to build up the resilience to, to not do that. That means you need to have knowledge and training and experience. So while the amygdala, amygdala is saying run away or fight, the cortex and the hippocampus is saying, you know, I've seen this before, I've seen it in the simulator, I've trained for this, I know this, brain settled down. So it's an override. It's an override. Right. It's, it's, it's a regulator. So the whole time through learning things, whether you're in a bank, being resilient to an upcoming catastrophe, maybe like Greece, you have the knowledge and experience that will always regulate your amygdala's responsibility, which is to get you out of that dangerous situation. And is that is practice? It's practice and it's knowledge. Purposeful and practice? Purposeful. It's deliberate practice, which gets into 10,000 hours. And uh, but, but deliberate practice is difficult, doing the difficult things that are beyond your reach, so that with feedback so that you can monitor your progress and you have a slow process of practicing the difficult things to build up your resilience and experience so that you're not threatened, you're not excited. So you could be doing something very difficult if you've done the 10,000 hours or the deliberate practice and to you it's part of your subconscious. It's like driving your car. Think of what you do when you drive a car. <clears throat> you're, making you're making the decisions about changing gears, using the accelerator, looking for people in front and behind, navigating, and you don't even think about it. This is deliberate practice to the extreme, particularly if you have an accident to feedback that you're not a good driver. So that's what we do in aviation. We, you cannot, cannot have competency without experience. And so we have to have pilots that have lots of experience and that are well-trained. And when that happens, the cortex and the hippocampus will override your fear senses to panic and get startled. Because to get startled when you're operating high, highly complex electronic equipment or heavy, heavy equipment, or if you're running a bank, 
to be startled and making rash decisions is not good. Okay, so <clears throat> that's that's we ha- we've sort of m- talked about this topic, touched on this topic of neuroscience, um, and what you're talking about here is the science of the brain and the way things interact. And you mentioned the word resilience, and to me, a good way to explain to our people listening to this, um, you and I, is um, it's sort of like coating. Your resilience is you're coating something by continually lacquering something with layers and layers of experience and practice and purposeful practice and deliberate practice, and you build up a resilience around the particular thing that you want to make strong. Is that a good way of sort of painting a picture? That is exactly it. I'm writing my next book now, and the first chapter will have a discussion of Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. And what is not what people don't realise is that alarms were going off when Neil Armstrong was coming was landing on the moon. There are six and a half million pieces on that Apollo vehicle, and with a 99% reliability, Neil was expecting 6,000 parts to fail, and he couldn't learn all the procedures in advance. You can't learn a thousand procedures, but what he has to be he has to be taught to be resilient in high reliability organisations, you have to have the procedures to recover from the unexpected and the unknown, and you have to have the procedures to to logically work through it and to recover. So Neil Armstrong, when NASA was incapable of resolving that situation, and they practised what Neil had had two weeks before, and they failed. All the engineers at NASA and the operations control failed to do two weeks before what Neil did by himself coming onto the moon in 1969. So Neil was more resilient as an individual than the whole of NASA two weeks prior. And he landed that aircraft, whereas NASA would have recommended he go around. It's an extraordinary um, example of resilience. So that's what we need. We need the ability to have our knowledge and our training and experience in the upper brain to always moderate the, the fear response. And if you have the fear response in practice, it means that you lose your fine motor skills, so you won't be able to drive very well. You might uh, your muscles tense up, so you you really can't operate very well. The fear response is what you don't want in business. That's what helped us run away from tigers a few thousand years ago. We don't need the fear response in business. So we always need competency and experience to be able to recover from a banking crisis or an oil spill crisis, whatever happens. And that's why I think the lessons from QF32 can relate to any industry. Or even a personal life, just at home. Absolutely. I mean, this sort of stuff happens at home. Like, you know, something happens with your kid or, what, well, you know, like four o'clock in the morning, your 18-year-old has just got his licence or her licence is out there driving and you hear something's gone wrong and you get alerted by the police or a neighbour or something like that. Um, you, you, you're no good to anybody unless you actually maintain your ability to purposefully go out and recover. You've got to be able to recover. Um, so it, you would just sort of see it as a contrived process. I, and I don't mean, I'm not trying to dilute anything. I'm not trying to make anything sound um, robotic. Um, and, you know, I want to talk about uh, robots in the future and um, 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 artificial intelligence being able to actually make decisions um, in the future because I actually, and we've discussed this, and I think this can happen in the future, will happen in the future for sure. Um, but do you think this is a, 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 a contrivance? In other words, are we moving away from our usual lovey-dovey emotional sort of lifestyles, when we're talking about business and these sorts of situations now, to actually contriving... Um, better outcomes for ourselves in order to survive. In other words, as a species, we have developed an acute sense of knowing how to survive best and that way, the way to do that is to be able to build contrivance neurologically to deal with those things we automatically do, that's our instinct. 
contrived against her instinct? I, I suppose so. The, certainly the way we responded to threats when we were living in caves is certainly not applicable to how we survive today. But even in the past, the old single-minded attitude to management and leadership and the way businesses work that's out of date. Now, because the world's flattened there's communications and we're now, we have an infinite market, which is the world market. We have infinite sales and infinite clients if we use the internet properly. And so we're in competition with the world and we have to evolve our management leadership practices to evolve with this new generation of communication. So all the processes change and all the processes we took for granted in the past, I think, through evolution, they've been found to not be ideal because the companies that don't evolve and change and update the management process and to empower the, the, the workers at the coalface, the experienced people, if you don't evolve your management and leadership to take account of those, you will not be resilient. You won't resolve from a black swan event and you will cease to exist. Is, is it the business that needs to be resilient or is it the individuals need to be resilient and, and therefore the business becomes resilient or is it the leadership needs to be resilient because you can't make everyone resilient? Well, how do People you have skills. People can save you. You have experience in your company at all levels. Probably the most, generally by the time you get to upper management, particularly if you get to a board level, you probably don't have the skills to do what your company is actually doing. It, it, it's, it's a difficult compromise between leading and actually keeping the skills set to do the job you're trying to get others to do. So you need to rely on your workers and the, and the expertise down at those low levels. You have to empower them. You've got to make it frictionless so that they can do their job if they don't like what's happening because they know that there's something wrong. They should be empowered by culture in the company to stop the operation. And there are people in the mining industry who have a little credit card they carry on their ring and it says the holder of this card has a right to call stop at any time and if the company does not stop, this card holder must call this mobile number immediately, 24 hours a day. And the number on that mobile phone is the CEO of that mining company. Because if people had said stop, maybe uh, BP would not have used the wrong mud mix in the Mexican Gulf that's now cost them $50 billion. Maybe there wouldn't have been a GFC. Maybe a lot of things that happened wouldn't happen. So there's, to, to build in the resilience, you need a corporate culture, starting with the risk appetite and the safety management systems and the culture that, that really the leader sets, the culture that empowers the individual to step up when required, and to say, I can help or I should do this, he should have the responsibility. And then there's the culture and the individuals that have teamwork skills and obviously the, the deliberate practice of 10,000 hours um, and the resilience in that individual, the knowledge, training, experience, working in teams. When you get that working really well, then I believe you have true resilience. So that's interesting. We're talking about organisms here, <clears throat> business being an organism. So when... I'm doing something, I've got to make sure, like when I'm stepping in the ring, I've got to make sure my brain or the, those, the part of my brain that controls the motor skills down on my feet allows, uh, is talking to my feet and my feet is talking to my brain in order to, for me to get out of the way of the corner when someone's about to bash me. Um, and, and I know that sounds very crude, but you're saying the same thing in a business, in an organism like a business or an organisation as we like to call it, but I like to think of it as an organism, the leader needs to have the connectivity with the person who is who has this card that you're talking about, the ability for this person to talk direct to the brain, so they connect, and this importance of connectivity in organ organisations or organisms, business organisms, is really really important. Too many businesses today have a disconnect between the top and the bottom, 
Yes. Too many. And Absolutely. in fact, most of that, that's sort of the culture. Absolutely. And what you're saying, when you were on the plane, <clears throat> did you, as the pilot, as the captain, connect back to the rest of the staff on the plane? How did it work? Um, I'll answer that last bit first so I don't forget it. We Often we couldn't talk to the cabin because the communications were such, the way the communication system worked, it didn't work. So we we sent Mark back to talk to the cabin crew manager, Michael Von Reith, an exceptional person leading the cabin, an example of where expertise in the cabin saved passengers' lives. So we couldn't talk to him directly. He didn't talk to us on the intercom once in four hours. But this is where when you have roles and tasks and people know their responsibilities, if there is trust, we can, we can trust Michael to do the job in the cabin, to lead the cabin. We, there's trust through verification, so we are, we are checking occasionally to make sure things are, are okay, but Michael always had it under control. So we delegated and we trusted Michael to do his job. He delegated, he trusted, everything worked. Uh, to, to just quote one more thing, the QF32 incident would have been even more successful, although there were no injuries, so it's, it's a facetious comment. But the most safest operation in my airline is if we have never flown with anyone before, the pilots or the cabin crew, because then we say, look, I don't know you, Mark. I don't know your skill set. I don't know what you do. And frankly, I don't care. I just want you to follow the standard procedures. And if you do that, then I know what you will do and when. And if you just do that, we can, we can do our, our job without ever even communicating. So when the communications failed on QF32 between the cabin and the cockpit, we trusted Michael and Michael delivered. Like conscious unconsciousness. Yes. Yeah. Now, there's one thing I want to say, and that is that um, people say that you only use 10% of your brain. Which, which is probably the most if, – if people say that, that just means they've never really studied the brain. Your brain is maxed out. Your brain is full. And when you save something in your brain, it's at the expense of something else. 80% of our brain is occupied to keep our situation awareness. It's, it's a situation that we know. We know wherever everyone who's listening to this, wherever you are, you know what is behind you. There's a door behind you. You know how to escape from the building. You know where there are seats in the room. Your situation awareness is not just for your body model of what you have in your body, but it's everything around you. And for a banker, it would consist of your awareness of, of Greece exiting the euro. So 80% of our mind is occupied keeping our situation awareness up to date. That leaves only 20% for the dynamic ability to respond to our environment. So, and that can be very complex in an incident like a, a meltdown or, or a QF32. So the job of the leader is to keep free mental space. He's only got 20% remaining. He's got to keep that free so he can keep a situation awareness. A situation awareness is knowing where you were, where you are, and where predicting where you're going to be and be ready for it. So 20% to keep your situation awareness. So a good leader must delegate. A good leader must free up mental space so he's almost twiddling his thumbs. In the middle of an emergency, you want the leader being having free space to make rational decisions. And that is what a good leader will do. He'll delegate responsibility, he'll delegate authority, and he will trust people. What does it he say won't about micro micromanage. I was going to say, what does it say about micromanagers? You, by definition, <clears throat> micromanagement is destructive for two reasons. One, it takes away the confidence in the person you're delegating to that he has authority, mm. right? He shouldn't be allowed to give. He's got the expertise. That's why he's there. Let him do his job, verify occasionally, but to delegate is a cancer on your junior staff. 
And secondly, to delegate means you're now focusing on the trivia at the expense of your situation awareness and your mental model of the whole world around you. So my job in QF32 was to delegate just about everything I could. I just made the aircraft, I made sure the aircraft was safe and we delegated everything else. And that's where the teamwork and having skilled people, they all come together under a trusting system and you can take a very complex high-risk environment where things are going on, the unexpected's happening, everyone's doing their roles and tasks and procedures and it all comes together. That's what QF32 was. It was excellence in teamwork. It wasn't me. I just let the people do their job. Once it landed, what happened? <clears throat> Some people would say it was more complex on the ground than in the air. Because when we stopped and eight fire engines surrounded us, we, we tried to shut down all the engines, but one engine wouldn't shut down. So all the, the two emergency defence procedures to shut down engine number one had been, all the wires had been cut. Um, if one more wire had been cut in that aircraft, I was advised by the Transport Safety Bureau, we probably wouldn't have made it down because of the behaviour of engine number one. That gets technical. Um, so we had four tonnes of fuel pouring over the hot Singapore runway. We had hot brakes, brakes smoking. We had an engine wouldn't shut down. We have 440 passengers in an aircraft where all the exit doors were higher than just about any other aircraft in the world. If we had evacuated, we would have put 15% or about um, 60 people into hospital. Uh, I think we possibly would have people not here today because the slides go down at 45 degrees onto concrete and um, it would have been really nasty. In fact, the engineer at my airline while we are in the air, he was doing everything to get buses and um, stairs to the aircraft because he hoped, he was praying that we wouldn't evacuate. To evacuate unnecessarily would be a disaster. And the decision we made to whether to evacuate or not was the most complex decision I've ever made in my life. It's very easy to say, and it's a cheap out to just evacuate and say, yes, throw them out. But we would have been putting them out onto, onto fuel that is high resistance. So when you walk through fuel, it's like walking over carpet, going to the elevator lift and pressing the button and getting a spark. You can spark yourself <clears throat> just walking through kerosene. And we're in a 35 degree hot runway. If they missed the kerosene or if they got down the slide without her being hurt, they would have then slipped on the kerosene. If they didn't do that, they might have walked in front of engine number one that was still running and get sucked into it. If they ran away from the aircraft, maybe they get run over by a fire engine. I could keep going with lots more threats. So we were doing threat and error management and decision analysis and we decided to keep the people on board. And I have had feedback from the highest people in the industry to say that was the most fascinating decision and they absolutely agreed with what we did. And did you discuss this with your co-pilot and engineers? Or what, oh, what this it, was... How did it work? There are many <clears> ways <throat> to make a decision and that's what I'll describe in my next book. But this was a process, process where everyone is throwing up ideas and you're, it's a con 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 continual decision-making process, taking everything and you, we were deciding, no, we're not evacuating but we're ready to go. We're not evacuating, but we're ready to go. We're waiting for signs of fire. We didn't presume and assume. For instance, we didn't assume or presume that the brakes under the left wing were hot because everyone thought that they were. We thought that they would have been and other brakes were smoking. It wasn't until six months after the event we found out that the, wings under the, the brakes under the wings never worked. 
We didn't know that. The system had failed to, to not even tell us that the brakes hadn't worked. If we had evacuated, assuming the brakes that the fuel was pouring on were hot, I think there'd be people not here, and that logic would now be found out to be wrong. We waited for signs of fire. There was no signs of fire. We didn't evacuate. That saved people's lives. And so in business, you have to work with what you're given. It's a black swan event. You just have to have knowledgeable people working through the decisions, not assuming anything, because it may not work out that way. You just have to look for the facts, you know, get the facts to 10 decimal places, and then use your knowledge and training experience to work through the decision-making process. How important is time in that process? Uh, you hopefully make time, and you can do many things to make time. On aeroplanes, you can put fuel on board and, and have more time in the air. Uh, if you don't have the luxury of time, then you have to prioritise and jettison. Now, we would people have said we should have landed the aircraft straight away when we had the explosion in the flight. But no, we had the time. We had the fuel to sort it out. We had the time to work out what we had left or to try and fix the problems, work out what we had left and then work out how we were going to land it. If we had thrown the aircraft on the ground straight away after the explosion, I don't think I'd be here. Because it's interesting. I'm no cheerleader for Tsipras, the Greek Prime Minister, but my view on, the, on what he's doing right now is he's buying time with the European Union. And uh, by going to the electorate and getting the electorate to make a vote one way or the other, it looks like to me that old adage, buy time, because time allows you to make decisions and you, you see more variables and you can make better decisions because you've got more information, more data. And I think that's what he's doing in the Greek crisis, which, or this European crisis, actually. And, sort of, uh, and, and it gives him time to discuss further outcomes and further alternatives. It seems to me what you were saying to me here is that once you're on the ground... You, you didn't buy time, but you used time to look at all the variables and actually kept washing all the outcomes, various outcomes, based on what, what was being presented to you in order to come up with a decision. Well, Am I'm I gonna right? Back, uh, certainly with the Greek <clears throat> crisis, I think if you can make time by saying, let's reconsider or go back to the table, then you get everyone's input. You get Mark Burris's input from Australia. What do you think about the Greek crisis? The more knowledge you can import and the more ideas, the better your decision will be, whatever it is. So it's always good to delay and, and process if you have the time. Now, if you don't have the time, then you have to, to compress and jettison the irrelevancies and then you have to um, really go towards a key focus. Now, to work out the key focus, what is your what are you there for? What are you there for as a leader of a bank? What are you there for as a CEO of an airline? We are there for the passengers. I am there for the passengers. My job is to make sure that if a passenger gets on my aircraft, that the family that will welcome him home that night at the dinner table will have him home. Every person expects the, has the right to expect that their loved one can travel on one of my aircraft and get home for dinner. That's my responsibility. And that's your purpose. That's my purpose. That's my why. That's why you're in the air. That's why you're flying. That's why I fly. I'm not, you know, I, when we join my airline, we can fly. You know, flying's assumed. So we're not there to learn to fly. We can fly. We will be, tra we will be converted to an aircraft. We are there to transport passengers. We are, we're not there to fly passengers. We're there to operate passengers. I'm there to operate the passenger and to get him home for dinner. That is my why. Mm. Now, when you work out the why, then everything's easy. Because if I have to get that passenger home I'm, I, and I have empathy for them, then in the air, I know what they're thinking. I know they have no control. They can't see. They, they know something's wrong and they're scared. 
so we communicate. We communicate to the max. We had on the ground while we had them on the on, on the aircraft with no air conditioning on a hot Singapore runway, we had two pilots in a perpetual loop walking on the aircraft talking to people. That was to communicate. We told them what had happened. I said, when you get off the airplane, go to the terminal and I'll debrief you for 45 minutes. So I, we debriefed all the passengers. So what I did in giving the full and open disclosure and a personal guarantee uh, in, in the after event, people said, why did you do that? There's no procedure for this. You, you're nuts to give your mobile telephone number to every passenger, knowing that they'll probably give it to the press. And I said, no, it was the obvious thing to do. When you have a concern for your passenger and you want to get them home, my responsibility just didn't stop when the aircraft stopped or the fireman walked in that front door of the aircraft. My responsibility continues to get that passenger home to his family, to his dinner table. Frankly, I don't care what the airline thinks of that. That is my why and I will. that drives everything I do. So I went out and I debriefed the passengers. I gave them my mobile phone number and I said, if you think that my airline doesn't care for you or if it's not doing what you want, then call me and I'll fix it. This is the miner's tag. This is the, the same concept. I suppose, yes, I suppose so. So I, I am keep my responsibility continues and it drives everything I do. You see, if you understand why, you know, great leaders think, communicate and act from the inside out, from the why, because okay, I'm going to get neurological again. The, the, the why is, is your uh, limbic system. It's your emotional system in your brain. You, it has no speech attached to it. So sometimes people say, look, I love this, but I don't know why. I, I think he's a nice person. I can't explain why. There's no words to describe the innermost part of your brain, which is a limbic system, but it actually drives your instincts and your, and your behaviours. So if you have a why that includes the passengers, then that will determine how you do things and what comes out as a consequence. You don't focus on the KPIs of aircraft pushing back on time or coming into the terminal on time. That's the what. That is the end of the line. What you concentrate on is a whys, and that will determine, if you know your values and beliefs, that will determine how you do things, and the outcome comes automatically. So everything I did was driven by the why, and that had the most profound effect on QF32 because people were so surprised that I gave my mobile phone number. It engendered trust. It gave a, it was a go-to person. If people said, here's the rumour that we were on fire, I could shut that, down that concept. Um, there was disclosure. So in catastrophes when things go wrong where, where there are rumours and there are innuendos and there's no go-to person, you shut all that down by giving a mobile phone so number. So you made yourself accountable made myself accountable, there was trust, and in fact the passengers then became part of the brand. They became part of the team. In trusting the passengers, telling them what had happened with the truth, they said, yes, we understand what happened, we, we think you did the right thing, and we're with you. And so when the, I told the passengers that the press will be outside and they will say that my airline's a bad airline, the Rolls-Royce makes lousy engines and the A380 is a terrible aircraft. And I gave them statistics. I said, here are the facts and just laid them out and said, when you leave the terminal, the press will attack you. And you know more than anyone else because you, I've, I'm telling you what's happened. You're the first people I've spoken to. I haven't even spoken to my company. So if the press tell you something, please correct them because you're the only people on the planet that knows what happens. So I'm empowering them. They leave the terminal and they, and they take control of the media and they took our brand around the world. The passengers, I think, made the best, um, protected our company brand. And that's because of the open disclosure, continuous communications, personal guarantee.
That's very interesting you should say that because we, we did a podcast here where I talked about the three questions Kerry Packer asked me before I invested in my company in Wizard many, many years ago. And the three questions were, what's your purpose? What's, what business are you in? Your why? Um, he then asked me about, uh, uh, do you have the ability to fight through a... When, when all the, the second question was about, do you have the ability to fight through everything when all the assumptions are gone? In other words, all the assumptions you produce to me change. Do you have that ability, like you had, to get through the crisis? In other words, have you, he asked me, have you ever failed in business? Do you want to know whether I could get through failure but to propose failure? And the third thing he asked me is, um, are you prepared to be accountable? And accountable to everybody, including him, most importantly, to, in his view, to him. And you've just gone through exactly the same three things. Those three things have always stood by me in all my business decisions and all the businesses I've ever gone into. And what I try to do is I actually try to get my business, the people in my business, particularly my senior staff, to understand that process. And I think what's a, it's a great um, comfort to me to hear someone who's, I'm just in business, I'm not determining anyone's life. Um, it's great comfort for me to hear someone like yourself, um, the pilot in a, the captain in a, a major inst- in, um, incident, saying that the same three concepts in that very short period, I employ them over a long period, but in that very short period, actually the three critical things that you used to create a safe outcome or the outcome. Forget about safe. It's the outcome. And understanding your business purpose, in your case, their safety, getting them home for dinner that night with their loved ones, is quite incredible. A lot of people just think, oh, I'm a pilot, I'm getting paid by the, the company and uh, that's my job and I turn up and make sure I don't drink and I turn up and I fly the aeroplane, I get off, I get the other end, I go and stay in a hotel and I get back and I get home. They're uh, like automatic. It's so important to understand this why. And, and if you once you understand why, all those sleepless nights we all us people have in small business, then when we wake up at two in the morning, we understand how to work out the how because there's always a how. There's always an issue. There's always a problem in business. Every single day there's some sort of issue. And they're the things that keep you awake at night. How am I going to fix this? How am I going to fix that problem? How am I going to respond to that person? Um, And a lot of times we don't have the answer straight away. But if we remember what our right purpose is, the rightful thing we are doing, the good thing we are doing for whoever we're doing, whatever the business is, then it actually helps us get through that process of determining how. Is that a fair... Well, I think you have summed it up perfectly. You You should write a book just on that single topic because that... It's not the what's that are important. It's not the end result that you should focus on. And that's where the KPIs, I think, are, are, are really distractors. You have to focus on the key values and beliefs. John Howard, when he talks, is a, he's a wonderful presenter. He says the most valued um, attribute in any politician is their values and beliefs. Because if you understand what they value and believe in, you may not agree with their particular policy, which is how or what, but if you understand their core values, you know that when something goes wrong, perhaps when there's a, the world's biggest um, um, Great crisis, crisis in, down in Tasmania with the shootings, oh, right. you can understand why he's reacting the way he is. And you might actually say, well, look, I wasn't planning to do it, but yes, I follow him and um, we, let's shut down the gun industry in Australia. So understanding values and beliefs is everything. Uh, we just discovered the BP will have a, probably a total exposure of $50 billion to, to what was a series, it was a chain of events, both in bad um, governance and bad safety compliance, and, and then using crack contractors and trying to make them the, the, the scapegoats. But they made, had some bad practices that ended up in $50 billion loss that could 
perhaps even have BP being taken over. Now, this month, I don't know when this goes to air, but this month in July, Shell is drilling in the Arctic. They are waiting for the ice to melt and then they're drilling down into the Arctic floor. And they have a totally different view to safety. Anne Picard, a wonderful woman who headed up Shell in Australia, she is going over there and her perspective of, of management, leadership and safety is different to BP. And she's leading the operation, drilling into the Arctic, and her whys are so deep and so profound that she will spend any amount of money to make sure there's no oil spill. And it's chalk and cheese. Are we, are we, Richard, would it be fair to say we're not spending enough time us, all of us, we're not spending enough time looking at leadership in big organisations. You know, like, we tend to sort of say, oh, you know, Gail Kelly, she earns too much money. You know, we, we're very dismissive. You know, Cameron Klein, who when he was running NAB, he earns too much money. You know, we had Angie Mentis in here from NAB the other day. She earns too much money. We tend to be very dismissive of everybody's because of the amount of money they earn. But equally what we may be dismissive of is not actually looking closely enough at their why, their purpose. Do they understand... Uh, and therefore, do they have all these mitigating things that they... Because, you know, they hold heavy responsibilities. This woman from Shell you're talking about, the people run the banking system here. Maybe we should, as a, as a as readers and as observers and commentators, spend more time and, and, and let, or stop dismissing them and spend more time in trying to understand them. I think we sometimes see leaders... We don't necessarily put ourselves in the same space as leaders, so we don't think about how they think. We think that maybe leaders should be autocratic, like a dictator. I don't think that works. Um, in all circumstances, I think uh, a benevolent dictatorship has worked beautifully in Singapore. It's probably the best example. But when you and, and some people think that chief operating officers would make an automatically just as good a good CEO, but I think a COO personality is totally different to a CEO personality. So when we can get past those those first differences, if you really look at leadership, it is um, quite different. It's it's looking at empowering having corporate values to empower the workers to get the best result. We're moving into extraordinary times in the future of automation. The disruption that's going to happen in the next 20 years will beat all the, disru the dis disruption we have seen in the history of the human species. The disrup disruption will be phenomenal and what will get you through it won't be the leaders, it'll be the knowledge workers in society that have all the skills to understand this stuff and the leader's ability to corral them into the company, to keep them employed and to use their skills to get the company through the change. The change is going to be fantastic. Leaders can, can dictate a few things, but you need to keep your workers there to empower them and so that when they have their QF32 crisis, they will do the right thing. Um, it's, it's the requirement for leadership to come up to the challenge and to be to be flexible, and there are many types of leadership um, systems around the world, but to be flexible to cope with the change because we, we are all, if we're going to survive, we have to surf on the edge of chaos, and chaos is the leading edge of technology and computers, mind in a PC, automation. It's going to change the world. And uh, if we're going to survive, we have to be on top of that. Whether you think you're in computing or technology now is irrelevant. Everyone on this planet, whether you're a poet or an artist or a journalist, you will all be immersed in communicating or translating the effects of what we have when we have robots and intelligence and computers surrounding us in 20 years. And it will be a, 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 an exciting world. And there are opportunities 
but we have to harness our workers so they can help us get us through there. And we're talking now about um, the Internet of Things and the connections between things using artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence being able to make greater decisions and even making decisions that we would ordinarily think are um, uh, exclusive to us in terms of our own DNA, emotional type decisions, what we would consider to be emotional decisions, decisions around fear, decisions around excitement. Are you talking about artificial intelligence being able to do that? In other words, training computer chips to be able to do, and I really mean training computer chips, to be able to do, make these sorts of decisions which are outside of where they currently are. All right. Um, if anyone has been practising with their quadcopters or watched the quadcopter market, the prices have come down from $20,000 two years, three years ago to $1,000. <clears> and and that little processor that has a fly-by-wire, fly-by-wire is a very complex uh, theory. Now, the fly-by-wire is down to a chip. It's a microchip in, that you buy for $10. And if you plug one plug in, you have a helicopter, you plug two, two, I've plugged four motors into it, you have a quadcopter, plug eight connectors. In other words, it dynamically adjusts. So the quad air transport market has come down to how many motors you plug in, the system adapts, and we can solve that problem. Now, take that concept and apply it to robots on the ground. One, a one-legged robot will hop, two-legged robots will run, eight-legged robots will be a spider. We are just about to have that in a chip. And then that enables the most extraordinary revolution in robots moving and doing things on the ground that we've seen with quadcopters in the air. So you can presume that you will have robots moving amongst you within the next 10 years, profoundly changing the world. I think the forecast was that, um, was it 40% of the now, five million Australian workers will be displaced by robots in 15 years. Absolutely possible. It's half our workforce. Absolutely understandable. <clears throat> the biggest development in robots, and then you have the next part, the next evolution, which is sentience, which is thought, consciousness and awareness. That's what I'm talking about. Right? Right. So your brain exists for one thing, to predict. Your brain exists to think, what, what is Decrepney saying, each word to the next? You're predicting, if I miss a word, you will fill in the gaps. You're predicting the whole time. Your whole intelligence is a measure of prediction. So when we can have a computer with thought, awareness, um, which is really situation awareness like a human has, when, we can, when a robot can predict, now it's becoming like a human. The biggest advances in neuroscience are from computer people who are looking at the logic of the mind and not the chemistry. And the, the computer people and the, log, logis, log, the logic people have been able to resolve pretty well how the brain works, not, not fully. We have to understand the hippocampus and the limbic system and the neocortex and how it all relates, why we sleep, you know, we, why we sleep is, could take an hour to discuss, um, because that's maintaining our, our knowledge and intelligence. The, um, but we can now almost replicate that in a machine. Hardware's almost there. We just need a bit more faster processing and to understand a bit of how the other cortex parts like the visual cortex fit in. So we are so close. And what that means, we are close to having robots that have thought, awareness, consciousness and prediction. They will have to learn the way a human learns. They'll sit down next to you. If you couldn't see them, you would think they'll be just like a human. They'll have to learn to walk, to crawl, to talk. But then you would find them indistinguishable from a human. And we are probably... Maximum, I would say 20 years, maximum 30. Could one of those fly a plane? Absolutely. They'll do anything you can do, except they'll do it a million times faster. So 
Here is the disruption. What's going to happen to pilots? Every, everyone who's here in this room could be replaced by a computer, will do everything they're doing just a million times faster. Where is the future for the workplace? What is the future? What is unemployment in 20 years' time when so many people are going to be displaced? This is the disruptor. This is the chasm that we will all fall into unless we keep our situation awareness and work out. There's a, there's a saying, when the winds of, of ill flow, some people build walls... Other people build windmills. So with the challenges that we're facing in the future, don't build walls to resist it because you can't. Build, build a windmill and capture it and own it and make the benefit from it. Well, you, well I reckon one of the big businesses to get into then is going to be seek for robots. You know, we want to be the one who's providing the robots. We want to own the robots, control the robots, and we want to be placing them wherever they've got to go to. And uh, maybe that's we're all going to turn into investors and get into that sort of business. Well, now you're thinking like a leader. <laughs> well, I probably am, I guess. But it's 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 sort of fasci- fascinating. Um, we've gone from you know landing an aeroplane as a pilot to we're talking about uh, uh, how the various parts of the brain fit into um, the future for robots and or artificial intelligence that that will surround us in maybe fifteen twenty years time. It's definitely coming because you know, I just know that in terms of the business, the technology business I run, out of the US technology business I run, um, the sorts of things that we're seeing that in terms of um, Harnessing energy, actually being able to replicate energy. You know, you eat your breakfast this morning, you provide your own energy. Um, we're actually working out how to harness energy in an artificial form in, into artificial intelligence. And it's running at a furious pace, a furious pace. And everybody in America or San Francisco is all trying to do the same thing. They're all trying to invent the, get, get the answer. And once you get to those points, I mean, the thing that artificial intelligence is, it needs power. I mean, but if you can start to harness power... Energy, we know energy's becoming almost free. So you can, you can harness kinetic power every time something moves or the wind blows or something. I mean, you, you start to harness this stuff and transfer it. You're going to actually make robots actually more efficient than you or I. And as a result of that, efficiency replaces everything. So if you've got a job and I've got a job and something present, someone presents themselves as more efficient than me, they could be younger, they could be... Uh, faster on their feet, they could be cheaper, whatever the case may be, um, I'll be replaced in a story. I can't fall back on my years of experience and, you know, the so-called, uh, you know, my so-called reputation. Um, these, the, if you can put energy such that these things can operate on their own without us having to plug them in, this artificial intelligence, they will definitely replace us at a rapid rate. We will probably come up with a protocol for limiting the ability of computers to learn or do certain things. If we don't, they will be able to mimic everything. So they'll become the next species? Maybe. That's fascinating. It's a challenge. Richard, this has been a fascinating discussion and we could talk for hours. I actually would like to get you back another time if you ever got some spare time. I know you're racing around uh, talking to all sorts of people and everybody's fascinated to listen to you. And... There is great relevance to what you say for business people who, you know, largely the sorts of people who listen to this program. Um, but, you know, we, and, and everything we do in life, doesn't matter whether you're a pilot, you're having personal crisis, or you're having business crisis, they're all the same sort of management processes. And this brings me to your book that you're writing, which is, the, have you got a uh, heading for it yet? Well, I have, but I, I really would rather not, dis- uh, I can't expose what it's called. I, I, the, the working name is Phoenix, right. sort of like coming out of the ashes. What's but it the, about? The book is really a summary of what I talk about when I go around talking. I make 
tours, talking about my QF32 incident and discussing. It's easy, the book describes what happens. My talk describes the why and the how. So we're giving, going back to the core. When I explain why I, think, why I think what I do, that explains how. And so when I go through those discussions, it brings up all kinds of topics of um, black swan events. So just stop there. What is a black swan event? For, for a black listening? swan event is an unforecast event with very low probability that has significant, significant consequences. For, for the, the listeners out there, you should pick up a book by Nicholas Taleb. He's a quant and he wrote a book about risk and he's called the book The Black Swan. So that summarises that that's what a black swan is. Could I just stop here? Just for those people listening, risk... I often say this should be not just measured by the probability of the event occurring, but the probability of the event occurring multiplied by the gravity of the event occurring. So what the you're consequence. saying... consequence. Yeah, so the gravity. So what happens? Like if a plane, if you have a problem with the plane, plane goes down, that's, that's 100, 100 out of 100 gravity. So you, what Richard's saying here is a black swan event, it could be 0.001% of a chance of the event occurring, which could be a you know, six sigma event or a one in a million event. Um, but if it does occur... It's complete disaster. So that is what you're talking. Correct. When you understand risk, if you're a hot, well in an airline, a, a, a dead passenger is compensated for five million. Injured passengers are compensated up to fifteen million. So when you work out the risk of an accident multiplied by the the dollars, you come up with a consequence. And so in aviation, we work at the minimum, the maximum safety for the minimum cost, and it works because only six hundred people were killed in three and point three billion passenger flights passenger uh, seats flights last year, which is a remarkable achievement. So working at the minimum, maximum safety for the minimum cost works. In hospitals, if you ask how much a person is worth alive or dead, they can't answer that question. They don't work at a risk level. So so in the book I'm discussing risk... Is that a chapter? Is a chapter? It's a whole chapter. And all these chapters stand on their own. They could be, uh, if I do a presentation, I will give any of these type of chapters as a, as the, as a whole presentation. So I can buy the there book when it comes out. There one chapter. One chapter is risk. There's a discussion of black swan events. There's a discussion, discussion of surfing the edge of chaos, which is predicting where technology is going and how we have to be at that leading edge if we are to remain relevant. Now, every chapter in this book revolves around the neuroscience. It revolves around your brain being able to store the information, to recall it, and when things happen, not getting excited. So this is where my book is different to every other book. The, the study of the neuroscience of the brain, the parts of the brain, the hormones that affect us, that drive us, dopamine, which is addiction. Dopamine explains uh, attraction for sex, for gambling, for drugs, everything we do. So Risk-taking. Risk-taking. So... The, um, the chapter on the neuroscience, which you don't have to read, but if you do, the neuroscience will explain um, how to learn, how to keep knowledge, how to recall it, training, how to train with deliberate practice that we've discussed, experience, how to build up experience to program your neocortex to regulate your, your hippocampus and the amygdala, um, teamwork, the ability to stop, to let people stand up and say, I can either help or I've got to stop the operation. Uh, we've discovered risk decision analysis, the d- different types of decision processes that people use, both in the military and out in the civil world. Uh, leadership, which is how to lead and inspire and to motivate. And the hormones, you see, I have to go into the hormones of the dopamine and the um, 
serotonin, oxytocin. These are the hormones of leadership that explain it. And when you look at the chapter on the neuroscience and understand the hormones, then that explains why we do what we do. And so to come back to the why again. Uh, personality, the attributes of people that, that exist in, in efficient organisations. Um, and that means working in teams, being friendly, not being um, discriminatory. Um, then there's a the discussion of crisis management. And part of the book will discuss going, a friend of mine who goes into boards and he finds the boards totally startled into uh, paralysis when a crisis hits. And he has to get them going and, and get them to become resilient and to lead as a board should. And then there's post-traumatic stress. The second most asked question was the post-traumatic stress. How did I identify it? How did I uh, treat it? And what was the final outcome? And, and that in itself could be a book by itself. I mean, you've got three books in all of this so far. And the but... Ultimate, but the ultimate result, when you put all this together, is that you understand how the mind works, you understand, understand why you do what you do, how to empower people, how to lead, motivate and inspire them, such that people will be confident to make courageous decisions because the people who make courageous decisions will form intrepid teams that make intrepid decisions that will get you out of your black swan event and then you will achieve what you want in resilience, which is to be bulletproof and not gun shy. That's quite amazing. You know, and I, I, that, I'm going to buy it. Uh, um, Jakey, what's the name of uh, that, that movie that Arnold Schwarzenegger's in at the moment? The new one. The new Terminator movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terminator. You know what, I, when you're talking like that, I feel like what you're talking about is forming a nation, or for all those people who read it, of superhumans. Like, we're, we're looking like we're moving in... By having that consciousness around all those things you're talking about and understanding them all, it's sort of like you become superhuman relative to everyone else who hasn't read the book or who, who's not conscious of the things you're talking about. Well, we, we have the superhuman potential in all of us. We just have to understand how we work understand the machine, which is our body and our mind, if we understand that, then we can cater for anything that, are, that hits us. It takes right back to the Buddhist concepts of mindfulness and consciousness. Yes. So in other words, we've gone from all this um, electronic thinking um, um, uh, and, and galvanising our, our senses and our ability to do things and well, well, well learned behaviours and uh, responses to crisis, and it comes all the way back to something more simple: consciousness and mindfulness. So that we can stay calm, and we can build windmills. Excellent. Thanks very much, Richard. Thank it's you. Been awesome. Thanks, Mark. Looking forward. This is the week ahead. Yes, that was unbelievable. We nobody could really talk because uh, we're all sat here in stunned silence, listening to what Richard um, transfixed us with a, like nearly hypnotised us in terms of uh, you know what we were learning from in his content and, and his delivery is excellent too. So, so it means we can't cover off a lot of things. So where are we up to? How are we going to how are we going to close out today? That's okay. We've got some great videos. We can hold those over till next week, Mark. A uh, couple of other things that we'll cover next week, partnerships, influential books, and uh, we'll keep an eye on those unemployment figures and home loans, and also the NAB Business Confidence Survey out next Tuesday. Excellent. be great to see if we get to talk to Alan Noster from NAB. Uh, maybe we should try and talk to Angie Mentors about that. He's the eco economics guy there, um, and uh, maybe explain to us the business confidence figures, how that all works. Let's make it happen. Thanks, guys. All the best. 
This has been the Mark Boris Podcast. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Boris. And find out more at markboris.com.au. Thank you.